Hello, and welcome back to The Political Notebook. This is Billy Robb, your host. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy Robb's dad. On this episode of The Political Notebook, we're doing a follow-up on education, talking more about school choice, the debate, uh, looking at different, different sides of the debate about school choice. We're going to look at vouchers, an extension of, of school choice and the voucher controversy that's playing out right now in Arizona. Talk about teacher retention. Um, how can we get more teachers in the classroom? But let's start with school choice. What is it? And what's the, what's the disagreement? So charter schools, a lot of people ask me, what is a charter school? I work at a charter school. And it's, they get public money, taxpayer money, uh, but they get to operate a little differently than a traditional school. So, for example, they have some freedom in hiring, that they're hiring a little more freedom in who they can hire. Um, they don't have to hire people with the teaching certificate necessarily. They do have to be what's called highly qualified, which means you have to take a test to be qualified in your subject. But they have more leeway on who they hire they can also gear it differently. You can have kind of different themes. There's some schools, I know Great Hearts here has a more classical education and um, <clears throat> reading the great books. You have some that are geared towards more science and technology. Some are, they just have different different emphasis and different, different styles, I guess. What else can charter schools do that public schools don't have to do? The most fundamental difference is the way they are funded and what they can do with their money. Um, the charter schools get a grant from the state, and that's all they get. Um, district schools also have access to the local property tax. There are programs, although the main one has not been uh, funded of late um, by the Arizona legislature, uh, to pay district schools, have um, programs to pay for their capital. They're supposed to receive some funding for the state to for buildings and major renovation to buildings. Um, and they have the ability to go to local taxpayers, property taxpayers, and ask for bonds to be approved. We just had a bunch of school bonds approved um, in our November election. And traditional schools get that, charter schools don't. Charter schools do not. Charter schools, to get their capital, um, to get started and to meet their capital needs, have to go to private lenders or private investors. So that's one of the big differences. In terms of how you use the money, district schools are highly regulated. Um, for example, in uh, what they have to do if they're going to purchase things. There's a procurement code that they have to follow. Um, uh, charter schools are much freer and how they can use their money, those restrictions don't apply. And that's been one of the sources of controversy. Some people believe that charter school owners and operators are engaged in uh, self-dealing. The difference in terms of hiring has been narrowed with the passage of recent legislation championed by Doug Ducey to increase the ability of district schools to hire uh, non-certified uh, but um, properly experienced uh, teachers. So you're seeing that narrow. Um, both schools, uh, types of schools, have to meet the state requirements in terms of 
the courses that you take to graduate. They all take the state standardized test, AZ Merit, and have results published. But um, I'm sure that there are other differences, um, but I think those are the biggies. Those are the main ones. It seems like the main the main argument against the idea of charter schools is that they're putting, they're hurting traditional district public schools by the money, any, any dollar that you give to a public school is, you know, if you take that out of the pockets of the district schools and, and that hurts district schools. But isn't that true that if you're, if you're giving money from this, from the state budget to charter schools, our schools didn't exist, that money would be going to the, to the districts? Do they have a point there? Um, certainly. It, 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 it does. I mean, charter schools are the fastest growing component in our educational mix uh, here in Arizona. Enrollment in district schools have been relatively flat. Uh, enrollment in charter schools has been increasing rapidly. Uh, if those that are going to charter schools uh, would otherwise go to district schools if they didn't exist, then the district schools would have more money. Um, if they would have gone to private schools instead, um, then uh, the district schools wouldn't have more money. On a pure on a per pupil basis, uh, charters and from a taxpayer's perspective, charter schools overall get less taxpayer money uh, than district schools. Um, so um, from a taxpayer standpoint, it is a cost-efficient way of providing it. But it's really, frankly, I think more philosophical than it is this question of where the resources go. Um, supporters of charter school believe that we should provide each individual student the optimal educational experience uh, that the student or his parents uh, want to receive and that we should have diversity. And that competition for students will improve the performance of all schools. Um, those who don't like charters uh, believe that there is the universal experience of all the kids going through the same program in the same kind of district school uh, is valuable both for education and for socialization. So um, while you hear a lot of fights about money, I think it really gets down to philosophy because in reality, uh, on a per-pupil basis, um, how the money shifts back and forth isn't very consequential. And you kind of hear... Just thinking about what you said right now, you kind of hear two separate things, and maybe they contradict each other, but I'm just going to kind of think out loud a little bit that one one kind of argument is that you got schools kind of cherry-picking the, the, how they get good, better performance sometimes is that they're cherry-picking the, you know, the top students. So you're, you know, in a, depending on where you set your school up, um, whether you offer free and reduced lunch, whether you offer a bus system, you're almost self-selecting in that way as you're kind of outperforming. But another argument against charter schools is that there's, they're worse education-wise because they're not, they don't have the regulation and oversight so that anyone, you know, just like any old guy up the street can have this idea, pop open a charter school, get, you know, entice kids to go there, pocket a bunch of money for himself, and then 
he's an, he's an educator. I guess what are both of those things happening? Are they both valid critiques? And I, how would you respond to those? Yeah, I, I don't think they are. Um, charter schools in Arizona have to accept students either on a first come, first in basis, uh, or um, on some kind of lottery basis. So uh, they cannot directly pick their students um, by not offering transportation assistance or um, participating in the uh, free and reduced lunch federal program, perhaps there is um, some self-selection. There's some selection that occurs on the basis of curriculum. You get some basis as a very high-performing school. That's not for everybody. Uh, it's a highly rigorous curriculum. But if you look at demographically, uh, charter enrollment in the state of Arizona skews, but just slightly, uh, more white, more affluent. Um, but uh, you still have 37% um, of uh, charter uh, students are Latino. Uh, you have a um, slightly smaller number that are on the free and, and um, subsidized meal program. And, and in terms of performance, um, old evidence raised some questions about um, whether charters improved academic performance. In Arizona, I think that that's largely been settled. And in all of those subgroups that we just talked about, uh, the performance of charter students on uh, the National Assessment of Education Progress Test uh, are, and the AZ merit test are higher uh, than um, for the district schools. But uh, achievement in the district schools is also improving. Uh, everybody is improving in education in Arizona. Um, so I, while we still have those debates, I think they've been largely settled in Arizona, and you now have 16, 17% of all uh, students in Arizona enrolled in charter schools. We've passed critical mass. Um, charter schools and school choice in Arizona uh, are here to stay. You make a good point that it's, even though it gets the perception sometimes that, that the charter programs are just for, you know, the, out, the outliers, maybe robbing the top top kids from the, from the public schools, but I work in South Phoenix. You mentioned Basis. Basis does have a campus there. You're talking about uh, school choice and competition for kids. On the drive, my drive to work, I'm passing four or five, six billboards for different charter schools saying, our school offers this, our school is offering computers. Hey, come here. But that's my last question on this, on this point is, there's just this assumption, I think, with the conservatives that want choice in education that this competition for kids is a good thing is it though a good thing if we're you know if, if we're competing and every 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 kid that you get there is going to be more dollars for you um you're trying to advertise you're trying to convince people you know trying to convince them to stay you know maybe you have a motive to i don't know um, get kids to be there. Maybe it's in their best interest to do something else. But uh, could that ever go overboard and be a bad thing, trying to compete for students? Well, well certainly it has 
it introduces um, uh, those considerations. What each kid uh, represents dough, and that dough can go someplace else, and that unquestionably uh, has to affect the judgment of principals and teachers and and what you do with each kid. Uh, but I think the evidence is increasingly convincing that competition is lifting academic performance. And Arizona, I think, is a prime uh, example of that. Uh, we're leading the nation in gains in national, on, on the Federal National Assessment of Educational Progress Test. Uh, and it's occurring um, more strongly in charter schools, but it's also happening in district schools. And we probably have more robust choice in competition than practically any other state in the country. And we're leading the country in gains on uh, NAEP scores. So while I think school administrators need to be careful about making judgments uh, based upon the need to keep the student there to keep the money. Right. Um, I think overall that's been overshadowed by the benefits of education in terms of academic achievement. And you see our regulation as being on the right on the right note because you hear about some other states where it's not regulated that much, and it's, it's, it seems like um, you're getting schools opening and closing really quickly and, and harming the students. Well, and and we've had a little bit of that turbulence here in in Arizona. Um, but uh, failing charter school, schools are permitted to fail. Uh, failing district schools are propped up, uh, which is better for kids uh, to put a failing school out of business and have them move someplace else or to keep it propped up and continue um, the failure. Um, so certainly we have turbulence. There's, there's probably... Um, some greater oversight that can occur, but we have a uh, charter school board uh, that I, I think um, others will disagree, but I think they're committed uh, to trying to keep things pretty clean in the operations. And, and charters have to come up periodically for renewal. So there is a uh, review process that doesn't exist for the district schools. And you've, you've written a lot about how you see charter schools, private schools, and uh, public schools coexisting in this is, I all, think, all together. I, I, yeah, I think this is the tragedy of Arizona education, particularly with respect to the funding issue. You have the charters fighting, well, you have the districts fighting the charters, the charters fighting the districts, the districts and the charters fighting the public schools. Um, and if you could ever get all the modes of education delivery uh, united uh, in a coalition to get more resources for all, that would be an incredibly powerful um, uh, political coalition. And philosophically, my view is if you're going to, through the coercive power of taxation, develop a common pool of dollars that are available to educate kids – um, you shouldn't limit those dollars based upon the choice of the parents as to where the kid goes to school. The, the, the dollars should follow the kid based upon that kid's share of the common pot. And let's use that as transition to talk about the voucher program. Speaking of conflict and speaking of parents choosing what, where, their, where their public money 
goes to in terms of education. The vouchers go a step further. They give public money, taxpayer money, directly to parents, almost like a ticket, that voucher. And they take that money in their hand and they can give that taxpayer money to a private school and use that for tuition to pay for um, their kid to go to a private school. And there's variations of vouchers all over the country, but can you just explain our voucher system here and then take us into what it was, what it was trying, what it's trying to be and how that's being contested right now? Initially, vouchers in Arizona were limited to um, students that fell into certain categories, um, those who need special education, foster kids, military kids. Uh, at, at the last legislative session, a bill was passed to expand eligibility to all kids. Um, phased in over time uh, by the basis of, of grades. And no, no restriction on income for the kids? No, no restriction on income, although as the bill was finally passed, there's a little bit more money available for students whose family income uh, falls below 250% of the federal poverty level. So there is a, a, a difference in what you get depending upon what your income is. But no one is precluded from participating uh, because of the money that they um, make. There is a cap of 30000 um, on the number of new vouchers that can be offered. Opponents of vouchers... That, that has an expiration date, doesn't it? Uh, no. It, there used to be an expiration date. Um, that, where, where the caps would be mm -hmm. lifted. Uh, that was replaced with a higher cap of 30000 but that cap is now permanent. On the new bill, okay. Um, now, there's those that believe when we reach the cap that the legislature will want to increase it. Um, that's not an unrealistic um, view from opponents of vouchers. Opponents from, of vouchers um, used exercise their rights under Arizona law to keep a law from going into effect that the legislature passes by getting um, a certain number of signatures on petitions. So um, that expansion is now in abeyance. Uh, it will, uh, unless the legislature does something in the inter interim or whether a lawsuit challenge to the validity of the petitions is successful, it will be on the ballot in um, November of 2018 for all voters to decide. So our state lawmakers made a law that expanded this program to 30,000. Anyone can use them. According to this law, any, like if I was, if I was already paying $15,000 to go to a private school, could I just get a reduction in that? Why wouldn't everyone just, well, you, you have to, I think you need to either go into kindergarten or be transferring from a district or a charter school. Right. I may be mistaken about that. Uh, but there will be a rush. Well, if there is the demand for vouchers, and I'm skeptical that there is. I, I don't believe that there's a large pent-up demand for private schools in Arizona because of the success of our charter schools. Um, but if there is, there would be a rush to fill up 
the allowable limit. And one of the concerns that some people have is that those special categories uh, for which um, vouchers were initially passed may get squeezed out. And I know there's some in the legislature that think that some priority to the old category should be provided. So in other words, what they were intended for first, once you open to everyone, they might not be eligible to get them. But we don't know yet, if, if it was opened up, how many people would want them yeah, up, I'm, up to I'm, that cap. Yeah. So the lawmakers passed a law, expanded it, and the citizens, people, started a, started a petition, got enough signatures on it, and now it's blocked. So it's not going to law right away, but it will be right now scheduled to be on the ballot for all the voters of Arizona to decide, is that right, what, whether this will be that's that's currently the case now if the lawsuit is unsuccessful and uh the um measure is is scheduled for a vote in november of 2018 uh, the legislature can do one of three things the legislature can just let it go let the vote go Uh, the legislature could repeal the law um eliminating the election. You're saying we're taking this off the table. Yep, just taking it off the table. And the legislature has the option of amending the law in some way, which would render that particular referendum moot and require opponents to go back uh, to the streets and collect signatures again. Um, The uh, opponents of vouchers uh, regard the latter uh, maneuver as kind of dirty pool and yeah. and with considerable justification. Yeah, you can. Ju- could they just change it a little bit? I mean, is there any rules on the intent or motive behind that tactic? I believe, given that they referred the entire law, not just parts of the law, uh, that any change the legislature were to make in the law would render the referendum moot. That would quite cause quite the stir. Oh, no question. <laughs> um, so let's get. I, there's been a couple arguments made. I want to. I want to. I want to address about the vouchers. Um, and one of the main arguments that I hear against the vouchers is that it basically is just going to help rich kids because, let's say, private school costs fifteen thousand dollars, right? And you get a voucher for six thousand dollars. Is there a specific amount for the voucher? It's it it does differ depending upon the student, but it's on average it'll be about fifteen uh, fifty six hundred dollars uh, for uh, those above two hundred and fifty percent of the federal poverty level, a little over six thousand for those who are below it. So the main argument I hear is, oh, private school cost. Let's say a private school costs fifteen thousand dollars. I think a lot of them are between. 10 and 15, you give a kid a voucher for $5,000, $6,000, that doesn't make up the difference. So the argument goes, this is not going to help people that need to get in charter schools because the tuition is more than the voucher. Uh, and there are private schools that are between five and 10000 So um, looking at the most expensive schools and saying vouchers won't get you into those schools or won't be enough to cover full tuition, I think is a little bit skewing of the argument. There's a broad range of, of um, tuition that, that is charged. 
also, um, an awful lot of, or, or the overwhelming majority of private schools have some kind of a religious affiliation. It's a mission. Yeah. And there's usually scholarship money available to try to bridge uh, that tuition gap. Yeah. That, another reason I, I find that argument kind of shaky is that there's always going to be a range of people who, if the price was $5,000 less, you could afford it. You know, any, you got this many people have are willing and able to buy it at 8000 If it was a little bit cheaper, more people would be able to afford it. So there's that whole middle middle range who might, like, I could send my city to a private school, but I'm just kind of like four or 5000 $6,000 short from what I'm kind of comfortable paying. That's, it seems like to me, well, that, they would be thrilled to get a, to get a voucher to go to a private school if they want to. No question. In, in my view, the, the pent-up demand for private schooling is principally among Catholics, but uh, some other um, religious uh, faiths that have schools where the parents would like for their kids to get both religious instruction at the same time they're getting academic instruction, uh, but they have a large family. It's just going to be too much for all of them. Right. And with the charter schools, you got an awful lot of traditional scholars, uh, charter schools, and an awful lot that have sort of a secular values uh, curriculum. Um, so uh, for those parents, uh, this kind of a voucher might very well make the difference for middle-class, upper-middle-class parents to be able to give their kids the educational experience they would most want. Right. And I go back to sort of my philosophical view. If you're collecting through taxes uh, a common pool to educate kids you shouldn't discriminate against parents and kids because in addition to the academics, they want religious instruction. But that, again, I believe that the demand for that is relatively small. But I, I mean, I get that argument though that people make is we don't want public money going to private schools, especially religious schools. I can definitely see how, to me, that's, well, we, that's, we, a, that's, a, that's a pretty legit argument. Like I'm paying taxpayer money. Why I think, would I let that go to I think a it's a, I, I think it's, um, discrimination on the basis of religion. I mean, why should a parent be denied uh, their share of the common pool that they pay into because they want religious instruction as well as academic instruction? And it's interesting that as a country, um, we don't have any problem with that at the college level um, in terms of federal assistance. Grants uh, yeah, grants, student loans, things like that. Um, they go to their fully available to private religiously-based um, colleges. Um, so we, we don't have that problem. And an awful lot of countries around the world um, also are open to uh, allowing parents uh, this option. Yeah, and I can kind of see, I can kind of see both arguments there too, that on the one hand, you don't, you don't want, you don't get to choose exactly where your taxpayer money goes from. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to see my taxpayer money go to build more nuclear bombs right now, but kind of pay into it and you get fire service and you kind of can't can opt out of that. So at one level, we're kind of all of this together, but another level, you, if you can, why not have a little bit more control over how you spend your, your share of the, of the taxes? I want to get to one more economic question about the vouchers. Uh, and that's just the, price of private education and private tuition if these vouchers become popular 
because aren't you, if you're subsidizing people to go there, and you've only gotten a certain number of spots, you've only got a certain number of classrooms, if all of a sudden your demand increases a lot because you have a lot more people who want to go there um, with these vouchers, isn't that just going to boost up the price of tuition at these schools, then rendering the voucher pointless? We have seen that at the college level. I think there's little question that increased federal aid to higher education has increased tuition costs. You might see that some uh, in um, K through 12 um, private education in Arizona through vouchers. I'm not anticipating it being a big factor. Again, I don't think there is a large pent-up demand uh, for uh, private schooling. And uh, most of private schools are uh, being uh, run by religious organizations that are pursuing a mission and are subsidizing uh, their educational mission. Um, so I think you would just see a reduction in the subsidization required, um, freeing up the funds for these religious institutions to be put elsewhere. I don't think you'll see a lot of upward pressure on tuition as a result of this voucher system if it's permitted to go into effect. Right, right. It's still, still up in the air, so we'll see how that we'll see. Yeah, how I'd that have plays to say out. the odds at this point are against it. I, I really? think it's um, highly likely that the legislature either will repeal the bill and not try to monkey with it, uh, or um, that it will get defeated at the ballot box. The record, the track record is pretty uniform around the country, uh, that while voters like the idea of vouchers in concept, uh, they turn down specific voucher proposals when they are on the ballot. That's been pretty much the, the electoral history. Well, let's finish up with uh, our last topic, teacher retention, and just a couple stats. 42% of teachers who were hired in 2014 are now gone in Arizona. That's pretty, that's a lot of people leaving the profession. And I read that uh, just this year, within a month, uh, close to a thousand teachers just up and quit. A lot of them just left, just left their post. Um, and to, I mean, I'm a teacher. To me, it's not a mystery why we have low teacher retention. I mean, this a lot of stress, a lot of hours, low pay. So one of those, one or more, more, all those conditions have to change to me. To me, it's not that complicated. What's your take on the, on the flight of teachers out of the classroom? Well, I, I would definitely defer to your insights uh, into the reality of being a teacher in, in Arizona. I hear the same thing, and, and your mom um, was a teacher. you got a brother who's a teacher. Uh, it is um, a uh, job that uh, is overly burdensome. We need to figure out a way to um, right-size the job um, so uh, that it's not such a sacrifice uh, for people to engage in it, uh, and unquestionably, particularly for people who want to have families, um, income is an issue. I think the um, on on income that's a function of 
figuring out how to get more money into the education system. Um, might be how to get more of the money that's currently in the education system to go to teacher salaries. I think there's a, a question about a disconnect between mm -hmm. the amount of additional dollars that have come in lately right. versus uh, what has gotten down uh, to teachers. I the, the tougher, even though as tough as that is, I think the tougher question is how do you change the job so it's not such a sacrifice? Right. Uh, and in some way, we've got to become, in both districts and charters, more outcome-oriented um, to say these are the outcomes we expect and to free schools and teachers to produce those outcomes yeah. in a way that makes sense. Yeah, and have, I think, more human outcomes. I would like to see more he more human outcomes. And that's the reality. I mean, we, we come what do you mean by that? Just, I mean, our whole, our whole, uh, we're spending so much energy as a state arguing about test scores, about AZ merit. We just redesigned the, you know, we changed the test that we're going to have. Um, we, we, we gave out the AZ merit test. I was reading some of the questions. I couldn't even get through the essay. I was so bored reading, reading an essay question. I'm just like, no one cares about this, this random clip of an essay that you have to like answer their intent, like just boring questions. Like who cares? Kids don't care about these tests. Um, but we've been, that's all we argue about. And it's like, okay, well now we have these tests. Now we have these grading system for the school. Well, let's, let's spend all of our energy redesigning this test. That's going to grade schools. Well, uh Oh, kids don't care about them. How are we going to make kids care about? So we spend so much energy on that. And I, my thing is like, well, we got, I got 25 teenagers sitting in my club. What do they want to learn? Like, what do they care about? What, who are they as people? Um, what do they want to do with their lives? And how can we create a, create a space where they can, where they can pursue that and we can give them the tools to, to go do that. Um, and so it's, it's just frustrating, I think sitting here and then, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, we can complain about the money issue, but you know, look at, talk to any teacher, like if you did every single little thing that you're required to do or, or want to do, how many hours would you work? Every little thing um, that's going to get you the, you know, the good rating and the good evaluation and all the little, all the little things you're supposed to do. I think a teacher would look at you and say, I can work 90 hours a week and not do everything that this job requires. And there's pressure, there's, and there's guilt, I think, of wow, I didn't stay up until one in the morning grading papers. Now you feel guilty because you're supposed to do that and I didn't lesson plan and I'm supposed to have all... It's just it's just impossible. So not only are you asking too much, but there's like a kind of a guilt of like, oh, don't you care about the kids? And oh, everyone knows teachers do it for for, for love and because they, they, you know, they have hearts of gold. And, and that I think that gets a little bit patronizing for people and people are like, come on, like there's... There's ways to make conditions better for teachers on that end. As we discussed in, in the last podcast, I, I believe that um, some accountability through testing is uh, both appropriate and, and necessary, um, but I believe in a vastly stripped-down um, uh, test that would test basic uh, literacy and numeracy, and I object to anything that requires subjective judgment, such as the essay that wouldn't appear on, on my test. 
Um, but somehow we need to clear away all of the bureaucratic um, uh, mush uh, that teachers have to work through and say, here's what we expect as outcomes, figure out how to do it, and figure out how to do it in a 40, 50-hour week right. and, and, and not create a job uh, that, uh, I mean, it's already a sacrifice. Um, any amount of realistic increased compensation is going to remain uh, at least a bit sacrificial. So you've got to make the rest of it livable. Yeah. And there are creative ways, you know, there are creative ways, I think, that, that you can approach that. Um, and I hope that, I hope that, that because more of the conversation has become almost a dire necessity to do something different because teachers are all over the country and especially in Arizona, no one wants to be a teacher. I mean, I would almost ask like, why would you want to be a teacher, you know, which is sad and it's sad for the kids. <clears throat> um, so let's, uh, Finish with another quiz question for you. <laughs> um, 10 out of 45 American presidents did not have a college degree. That's 22% for you students at home doing the math. Can you name how many American presidents out of those 10 can you name in 30 seconds? Oh, wow. Um, well, uh, Harry Truman, I suspect, was the last one. That's correct. Um, and after that, it would be kind of random as to which ones that I chose. So let me punt. Who are they? Well, first one, George Washington. Then we had James Monroe. Doesn't, doesn't count if you've had a university named after you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, I think it's fascinating, though, how, how education worked back, you know, back before these things. A lot of people were self-taught um, or just had tutors. And James Monroe, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison attended college but did not have a degree. Zachary Taylor, Phil Moore. I feel like I'm mentioning a bunch of streets in Phoenix right now. <laughs> um, Abraham Lincoln. Self-taught, um, Andrew Johnson, uh, Grover Cleveland, and then William McKinley also went to college but did not graduate, and then Harry Truman was was probably the last one ever, I would guess. Um, but there's your little history lesson today. Joseph they, Scott Walker was a contender uh, this last time around, and, and he did... He did not graduate. Oh, is that he, right? he attended, I think, four years, but did not formally graduate, if memory correctly serves. Interesting. Well, thank you very much for listening. This is The Political Notebook. You can find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you next week.